All right, fam, would you please open your Bibles? We are back in Romans, and all of God's people said amen. We missed you, Paul. We are grateful to be back in Romans. This our 60th installment for our joy in the book of Romans. We'll be in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square, um, and I have certainly missed these words, but I'm grateful for the time that we spent the past four weeks in considering what it means to be us, the, the nature uh, and purpose, people, power of the church. Uh, and so today we will be in this particular text, but I want to remind us as we come to this text where we've been thus far in Romans. So Paul opens his letter to this first century collection of believers in Rome by sharing his desire in a very simple way. He just wants to be with them. Isn't that beautiful? This is how he opens the letter. I miss you. I want to be with you. And he says in Romans 1, verses 11 and 12, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, by yours and mine. And having said that, sort of communicated this longing, then he gets clear on the gospel, on the gospel message to which he is writing them about in verses 16 and 17 in that first chapter, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, namely through Jesus Christ. From there, he exposes the depth of our sinfulness, and this was a season of many months where we we could not find any wiggle room as a church, because he was making clear that, that in our sin, we are all under the righteous and divine judgment or wrath of God that remains on us if we remain in sin. And he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, if you remember. He's talking to these two groups of people who now find themselves in a single family, the family of God. He's talking about those who grew up in the church, those and those who did not, those who grew up in a religious context and those who did not. And so his words are convicting for those of us who are religious and for those of us who are secular in sort of our our frame of thinking or our our outlook, the way that we see the world. See, no one is innocent. And so he writes in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, quoting Psalm 14, he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. Hard to hear, hard to admit, but but it's true. This is what God's word exposes in us. Left to ourselves, we do not seek after God. But then when we are perhaps at our lowest estate in this journey in Romans, Paul points us to Christ by exalting Christ. He says, we are freed from wrath and judgment and death by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who is himself the revealed righteousness of God. And as we learn, righteousness is not a worldview. Righteousness is not merely a pattern of behavior that we need to follow. Righteousness is a person. And this is the beauty of the Christian story, is that when you come to Christ, it's not about you getting your life right and righteous, it's by you submitting to the one who is righteous, and about you believing and trusting in the one who is. And from there, Paul explains how this saving righteousness, Jesus, is embraced and even enjoyed only through faith, which then results in this overwhelming experience of divine peace. And this is where we ended in in chapter 5. We all want peace. If ever there was something that we desired, simply peace and assurance and that that sort of deep settledness that we know we can only find when we look to the Lord. So chapter one was all about the gospel. Chapter one, kind of middle way through, and then on and through the middle of chapter three, is about the fact that we are all in sin and under wrath. And then we get to chapter four, it's grace through faith alone. And then by the time we get to chapter five, we're invited to embrace and enjoy peace the peace of God. 
So Paul, in particular, has concluded, or very specifically, has concluded this thought on peace as he comes to the end of chapter 5, and he writes in verses 20 and 21, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where grace, or rather where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Let's keep that in mind. This is going to be critical for our, our understanding today. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So grace abounds, Paul says, and it brings us peace. Grace abounds, or grace reigns in us. This is the prevailing power in the heart of the Christian, and it brings us peace. Jesus reigns in us and all around us and brings us peace. Peace. Are you with me yet? This is what Paul has been repeating over and over again for your joy and for mine. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is proclaimed to you in the middle of a global pandemic. Can I get an amen? You can have peace in the middle of all of this. Not because tomorrow we are guaranteed that things will change, but because in this instant you are guaranteed an encounter with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ. That's so settling, isn't it, church? It's so settling. And that's where we pick it up in Romans chapter 6. And here's the rub. Here's the hard truth. In the middle of that peace, in the middle of that grace, in the middle of that faith, it is easy for us to justify our sin. Let's let this settle. This, this needs to really be at the forefront of our minds and really our own contrition and admission today that in the middle of faith, in the middle of peace, and in the middle of grace, it can be easy for us to justify, justify our sin as well as the sin of those around us. Why? Well, that's what Paul addresses next. We, along with Paul's original audience, are participants, if you will, in this silent spiritual protest of sorts. We might say to ourselves, what's the big deal? Sin, or since grace abounds when I sin, why not do as I please? Right? If grace is always right around the corner for those who are in Christ, then why not do as I please? Or maybe we would just simply say, everyone just needs to chill out and cool it off with following all of these rules and obedience and restrictions. Let's do as we please. If we mess up, God will forgive us. There's a lot of grace here. Grace abounds. Right? That's what we need to talk about today. How easy it is. For us to justify our sin. And I'd like to talk about why that type of perspective or attitude reveals that we have misunderstood grace entirely. If we think grace is the thing that simply waits around the corner for us just because we are therefore motivating us to do whatever we please, we have misunderstood grace. See, we are tempted to believe, ultimately, this is what I believe is underneath this, we are tempted to believe that sin leads to the good life. That sin and doing as I please will lead to the good life. But what the scriptures are going to teach us today is that only grace can do that. Only grace can lead to life and a life that is truly life, the good life that we find in God himself. So please hear this. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 4. We'll pray and we'll get to work. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. These are the words of the Lord, and we say thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
As I look out at my brothers and sisters, I do not know the specifics of their week. I do not know the specifics of their heart. But how good it is to know that you do. And therefore, what we are dependent on in these next few moments is not the art and craft of wisdom of this world. What we need is the word of the living God. We need your comfort. We need your correction. We need your peace. We need your assurance. We need your righteousness. We need your forgiveness. We need you to cover our shame. We need you to remove guilt from our hearts. We need you, Father, by your grace, to produce a contrite spirit within us. And we thank you, Father, that in many respects, as you strip us down, you are the God who then clothes us in righteousness. That you never break down something not to rebuild. You always restore and always heal and always renew by your grace. And so I pray that you would help us to not be defensive, but you would help us to submit as we hear the truth of your word and that we would celebrate with great joy as you renew a right spirit within us. I pray that not just for us individually, but even us as a church family. Help us to even understand what it means that you don't just speak to our individual hearts, but you speak to us as a family, as a body, as the bride of Christ. So give us ears to hear, we ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. So as we mentioned near the end of chapter 5, Paul essentially articulates that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And, and it's this thing, this, this statement that he makes that then leads him to anticipate yet another objection. See, what Paul is saying is that no matter what we have done, God's grace and power is sufficient to forgive and heal and restore. Hear that, church in the square. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've thought, no matter what you've failed to do, no matter what you've failed to say, no matter what you have said, grace abounds for those who are in Christ wherever sin shows up. There is always grace, and his grace is sufficient for you. But in light of this truth, he anticipates yet another objection or response. Remember, he's been doing this through chapter 5 and chapter 4. And from a personal standpoint, the objection might be something to the effect of, can I sin more so that grace will abound more? Now, that might sound silly, but in our sin, we say really silly stuff to ourselves. I bet if I do this, grace will abound more, and doesn't God want me to experience grace? So I better sin, so God will be gracious to me. I I'm sorry, maybe this is only happens in my heart and in my mind. We come up with some really weird logic when we want to sin. And so Paul is saying, perhaps this is coming to your mind, but from a social vantage point, particularly for those of his readers who are quite religious in their outlook, they may have objected, saying, doesn't grace encourage lawlessness? In other words, if you just say grace is always ready for those who are sin sinning, then everybody's just going to do as they please and it's going to be crazy. See, these responses might seem ridiculous at first blush, but I think these are the impulses of our hearts. See, remember, Paul is writing to a diverse spiritual community, both Jews and Gentile church members. That means he's writing to both those who grew up as the people of God, who were ruled by God and his law, and he is also writing to those who grew up in a world with a pantheon of gods and, and regulations and powers that sort of marked their world. They, they were ruled, in other words, by passions and by honor. And so he is speaking to those both who have been ruled by God and his law as they have grown up, and he is speaking to those who have been ruled by passions and by honor. In church in the square, the same two groups of people exist and member and sit with us today and gather even on our live stream. See, we respond differently to grace and carry different objections to grace. 
See, some of us may respond religiously to grace, fearing that it will lead to sort of moral chaos and lascivious or sinful living. We think people won't follow the rules like me. So don't be too gracious to those people because I, I, me and Jesus have got it worked out and I know how to do this, but they probably don't. So don't be too gracious to them. See, to this day, religious people have a hard time trusting the transformative power of grace. We don't think that it'll actually change people. We think it will simply lead to people getting away with what they want. Others of us have responded in a more moral, modern or secular sense to grace, feeling liberated to follow fleshly pangs and impulses that we trust will make us feel good and experience freedom. We think people don't need to follow rules because God loves us. To this day, then, modern people have a hard time trusting obedience in the context of grace. They think that the two can't live in harmony, that the two can't coexist. You either are obeying and following rules, or you are people of grace. But grace is not supposed to lead us to lawlessness nor legalism. It's not leading us to either of those things. Salvation by grace is neither the centering of rules nor is it the eradication of them. This is what Paul is teaching us. What does Paul say? Look at verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Church, what are those three words? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? See, in response to this possible objection to his teaching, Paul has a very clear and direct answer. Isn't that really good news? He says, no, you should not do that. That is not a good idea. Don't get it twisted. Don't do that. He says, by no means. You should not go on sinning so that, or motivated by the reality, that grace is merely going to abound. So what's this mean? Well, at a most foundational level, Paul is saying there is no justification for sin. There is no justification for sin. Grace is not an excuse or reason to sin, but rather a powerful gift for those who are in Christ when we do. Grace is not our, our reason or our motivation or an excuse to sin. It is a gift to those who are in Christ when we do sin. But Paul sees this objection as more than a mere action, and I think this is really important for us to understand. Paul does not frame the question around sinful behavior, but rather about sinful status. See, in chapter 6, Paul has begun a new movement or a new thought, one in which he is sewing together some connective tissue, if you will, between the story of God's people in ancient Israel and the church of Jesus Christ. We'll notice that in chapter 6, he makes a connection between baptism and the crossing of the Red Sea. He'll connect freedom from sin with freedom from Egyptian captivity. He'll connect in chapter 7 a new relationship with the law from that that was given at Mount Sinai. And finally, he'll connect God leading his people home to glory in the age to come with God's people entering the promised land. But what's all this background and structure? Why is he making this connection? Well, continue in sin, in that passage that we just read, is less about doing sinful things and more a question about a standing or status as a people like Israel. See, the point is that we are now a people who have been washed, who have been freed, who have been made righteous, and are on our way to an eternity with God. It's what Paul explicitly writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come. That's great news. We are no longer in sin. We are in Christ. We are no longer united with sin. We are united with 
Christ. Therefore, it makes no sense to continue in sin. It makes no sense to embrace that as your identity. So, for Paul's Jewish readers and those with a religious inclination, that means we should no longer look for our righteousness through following rules. We are not ruled by rules. For his Gentile readers, and for those of us who relate perhaps more to a modern way of thinking, that means we no longer seek our identity in passions and honor and freedoms. We are not ruled by our passions. We are not ruled by our inward impulses. They are not central to us. See, grace never invites us to sin. Grace invites us to die and be raised to new life. Grace makes us, in other words, what Paul says, a new creation. We are in Christ. Now, it may seem really odd to talk about death, particularly our spiritual death. And it's because somewhere along the way in modern Christianity, we have convinced ourselves that we don't need to die in order to follow Jesus. Let that settle, please, my sisters and my brothers. We have convinced ourselves, and we've begun to believe we don't need to die in order to follow Jesus. We merely ask him to join us on the journey that we are already on. We don't need to die. Consequently, we don't talk about our spiritual death enough. We don't like talking about dying to ourselves, or what Jesus describes as denying yourselves, picking up your cross, and following him. We like to think about the grace of God as a gift of his love, of his joy, and and of life to undeserved sinners like you and me. And that is so true. That is absolutely what you are promised in Christ. Life and joy and love. Thanks be to God. But the love and joy that God extends to us always come on the other side of resurrection. The love and joy and life that is extended to us by grace comes on the other side of resurrection. You see, resurrection is a lie if there is no death. Resurrection is a lie if there is no death. Jesus' victory over the grave is a hoax if he didn't really die on the cross and literally get buried in the tomb. Similarly, I think many of us live a Christian life that is equally fantastical because we have never actually died. We've merely embraced some vision of a life that God offers us. Perhaps we have been identified and grown up in the church. Perhaps this just seems to make sense from a moral viewpoint. We like the Sermon on the Mount, and instead of dying, we have merely invited Jesus to join us on the journey of our life and believed that we have found the new life, but we have never actually died. See, the good news is not just that you can have life today, it's that you can die today. So what specifically am I getting at? Well, let's look at this objection again and try to get into the mind of someone who would ask it. Look at verse 1 yet again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul is asking this question because someone has considered it. Someone has either voiced it in one of his ministry journeys. He has heard this question before. Now, If you've really experienced grace and the unmerited favor, this unmerited favor, which is what grace is, you have received something based on a relationship. You haven't got it based on your performance. You haven't gotten it based on your beliefs. You have received it based on relationship. And grace is neither legalism nor lawlessness. It's undeserved love. So the question is, why would we betray love and grace that we have received through relationship? Why would we act, or why would we act this, that this relationship doesn't even exist? Well, I think inherent in the question are three misconceptions about grace. 
Three misconceptions that I think are revealed in someone or in the heart that actually asks this question. Three things that I think reveal why we would betray divine love and continue in sin. First, I think if we're honest, we believe that sin is more fun and more powerful than righteousness. Sin is more fun and more powerful than righteousness. Sin promises to give us a feeling, a good feeling, and an experience that we believe righteousness withholds from us. In other words, we do a calculus. If I obey, it will hurt and I won't get what I want. Therefore, I'm going to do what I want. It will feel good and then we'll see. See, sin has convinced us that it won't harm us the way that righteousness we believe will. And in a pinch, then, we are prone to trust our idols to save us from our problems, whether it be rent or relational or even climate change instead of the Lord. We lean into our idols and trust them and not the God of the Bible. Second, the other reason why we might reject divine love that has been given to us as unmerited favor is that we don't think sin really has lasting consequences. We always think maybe it'll hurt for a minute, but ultimately I'll be fine, right? I'm going to go ahead and do this because it'll feel good, it will be right, but ultimately consequences won't last because God is good and gracious. So I'm going to go ahead and sin because grace will abound, the consequence won't last. I give you, if you've been reading along with our Second Samuel reading guides every day, you will have just read the story of David. And David has literally convinced himself that because he is king, he can not only commit adultery, but he can kill someone and mitigate any amount of consequence that he will get. Now, you may not be familiar with that story, but it doesn't work out. It does not work out at all. In fact, there is spiritual blindness in David that the prophet Nathan comes and shines a bright light on. So sin always has a lasting consequence, but we have convinced ourselves that it does not. Thirdly, and Lord help me with this one, we don't think grace is transformative. And to be completely honest, this is something that the Lord has really begun to zoom in on in my own heart, particularly in my parenting. See, we don't believe that unmerited favor actually has the power to change someone. Actually has the power to change someone. I've witnessed this in my parenting, being gracious towards my children, or more practically, withholding an earned punishment or consequence feels like it's going to breed chaos in my home. Right? Are you tracking with me? If I look at my nine, seven, five, and definitely my two-year-old, and I say, I told you the consequence, here's the consequence. But if I give them grace on the other side of that and withhold it from them, I'm going to go, they're going to do whatever they want. We're going to lose control of this house, right? And, and it's not, I don't actually think that being gracious towards them is actually going to change them. I think grace is going to give them license to just keep being wild children, right? I don't trust grace. But what's been crazy is that the Lord has been teaching me. He's been proving me wrong all the time. See, ever since that we've tried to teach our kids a, the gospel and the way that we even parent and give them consequences, by sometimes taking their time out or we lose screen time and not them, like legitimately taking their consequences, this is where I'm like, oh, this is not going to work out. They're just going to go, mom or dad's just going to take away my consequence. You guys, what has begun to happen is that when one of their siblings get into trouble, they ask mom and dad, can I take their consequence for them? My children hate timeout. They are rambunctious, crazy, energetic people. So when one of them is like, actually, my brother got in trouble, can I take their punishment for them so that they can be free and enjoy whatever they want and I'll sit in their place? This is gospel stuff that starts to happen. 
That's, that, that's the gospel actually transforming lives. That's, and I just don't trust it. He keeps showing me how this actually works in my life and in my children's life, and I'm like, ah, that was a fluke. That was a fluke. I don't trust grace to be transformative. See, after the first five chapters of Romans, Paul asks a simple question. What shall we say then? What shall we say about everything that's been written here? What shall we say about salvation by grace through faith? Keep sinning? Remain in sin? Absolutely not. That's not what grace does. That's not what grace is. You would not say that if you actually, you would not say that if you actually had read the first five chapters of Romans. In fact, to put it more bluntly, Christians don't think like this. Christians don't think like this at all. Why? The reason Christians don't think like this is summarized in the simple yet revolutionary idea in verse 2. We died to sin. We died to sin. We'll consider this more in detail next week, but for our time, Paul says this in verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He says a few things about what it means that we died to sin. See, in our spiritual baptism, we identify with Christ's death specifically. But Christ did not stay dead, right? Therefore, if we died with Christ, we will always be raised to newness of life. So the big reason why we should not remain in sin so that grace would abound is because we have new life. We are no longer bound by sin. We haven't just died with Christ. We have been raised to him. Therefore, we died to sin. See, the good news is not simply that you can have this life today with Jesus. It's better than that, church. It's the good news of Jesus is that you can die today. You can die to sin. You can die to greed. You can die to pride. You can die to addiction. You can die to dissatisfaction and joylessness. You can die to worry. You can die to fear. You can die to shame and guilt and lasciviousness and laziness and all of these things that do not bring about the fruit of righteousness. You can die to all of those things today. You can die to yourself. But of course, our death is not the end of the story. See, Paul connects our death to sin with our baptism with Christ. He says he was, we were buried and then we were raised to new life. And notice the precision of the language. Just as Christ was raised. Just as. So if we believe that Jesus' resurrection was not only literal, but authoritative and powerful and put death to death, there is that kind of power that Paul says, now you are raised to newness of life with. Just as becomes something new because in resurrection we become like Christ. What is true of him now becomes true of those who are in him. As one scholar N.T. Wright put it, that in becoming a Christian, you move from one type of humanity to the other. You should never think of yourself in the old mode again. But that doesn't mean that we won't sin. We will and we do. I think it's important to wrestle with that, to acknowledge that. Just because we have died to sin does not mean that we'll never sin again. Because I believe this is where there can be a lot of shame or a lot of sinful license taking, taken. Like, well, I'm, I'm still a work in progress, so I can just do as I want. Or I thought I was over this, and now I'm still caught into this. See, the moment you become a Christian, what Paul is helping us to see is that sin no longer controls you. It can no longer dictate to you. It no longer seals your future. Yes, 
We may still be prone to sin. Yes, we may still have hang-ups and shortcomings. We may still wrestle with pride and still be faced with temptation on a daily basis. You, but you are no longer in sin. You are no, now you are in Christ. We still have sin within us. Sin, sin still may exercise some authority or power over us in this life, meaning we may still sin, and sin still tempts us and influences us, but sin no longer can dictate us. We are no longer under sin's dominance. We are no longer under sin's consequence. We have the power to refuse sin and choose righteousness and choose obedience. We have the power to refuse sin. Why? How could this be true in this newness of life? Because the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ now lives within you. See, that's that new life. You've died to the old self that had no spirit of God. You've been raised in newness of life in whom the spirit of God now dwells within you. So you have a power within you you didn't have before. Paul tells us because of that, we might walk in newness of life. See, because we died to sin, we can walk in newness of life. We just sang about it, that your name is victory. You can walk in that victory. You can walk in a new life. You cannot walk, rather, in a new life if you are still clinging on to the old one. You cannot fully embrace the life of a new creation if you are still clinging to this idea that you are still in sin. You are not in sin anymore. Sin no longer tells you the full truth of who you are. Jesus does. Thanks be to God that he has done a work that has extended unmerited favor or grace to us, which not only invites us to die today, but raises us to new life today and fills us with his very spirit. See, in this new life, something crazy starts happening. That we know now that righteousness actually always brings us more joy than sin. This is what Christians begin to think. Because this is what the spirit teaches us. Where once we thought that sin would give us more pleasure and more joy, more happiness, now we know righteousness does that. Christians think like that. When you have those impulses and thoughts, praise God because he's doing a miracle in your life. That's the fruit of his spirit. We know grace is more powerful than sin. It's more powerful than legalism or lawlessness. We know that sin may have lasting consequence, but grace has lasting healing and forgiveness and resurrection and restoration. We know grace brings about more fruit, more fruitful change than sin ever could, than the law ever could, because the law was not intended to do that. See, this is what Paul desires for his readers to know and see and believe. Those who were ruled by the law are now in Christ. Those who were ruled by passions are now in Christ. He wants them to understand that grace neither leads to lawlessness nor legalism. Grace, church in the square, leads to life. So may we walk in it. Heavenly Father, we need your help in this. Left to ourselves, we are forgetful. Left to ourselves, we find excuses for sin. But thanks be to God that today, by grace, we are invited to die. Because today, by grace, we are invited to resurrection. And so may we not be a people who merely believe that Jesus has invited us to invite him along the journey of our life, but calls us to come, deny ourselves, pick up our crosses, and follow him. May we be a people who embrace this newness of life because first we have embraced that we died to sin. So encourage us in this, empower us in this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?